1: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino, the The big big dinosaur dinosaur podcast, podcast. where we cover news, interviews and discussions of all things dinosaur.
0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have an interview with Brian Noble. Our dinosaur of the day is Vastatosaurus rex, which is the fictional T-Rex descendant in the 2005 King Kong movie. But we're really going to talk about probably the original King Kong movie a little bit more, which they called T-Rex. But anyway, we have a bunch of dinosaur news. And as always, if you would like to support us, please go to patreon.com slash Dino.
1: You may notice that this is episode 95, so we are rapidly approaching our 100th episode and we've got some plans on how we plan to celebrate that. So stay tuned with more details in upcoming episodes.
0: Yep. And there'll be special benefits to all our patrons. So jumping into the news, there's a new dinosaur discovery. Well, maybe not that new. It was actually discovered back in 1998 by Oliver Rauhut and colleagues. But they've been preparing the fossil and then the paper since then. But we still don't know too much about it. It's named Vihemvenator albatae. And Vihen comes from a chain of hills in northwest Germany, which is west of Hanover, where it was found. And Venator is Latin for hunter. We see that in a fair number of dinosaur names.
1: Concavenator.
0: Afrovenator. Yeah. (laughs) The specific name Albati honors geologist Friedrich Albat, who found the fossil. That was 18 years ago now. (laughs) It's a megalosauroid. And unfortunately, much like Megalosaurus, they didn't find much of the skeleton. They have a decent portion of the front of the skull, six big sharp teeth, and some of them even have preserved serrations, even though they're not particularly well preserved. There are also a couple of vertebrae, ribs, leg bones, and some other small pieces. But when you look at the little picture of the outline of what they think it looks like, and then the overlay of the fossils that they found on it, it's mostly just totally blank. There's just little bits and pieces throughout. We can tell that it's a megalosauroid, or a big meat-eating theropod from Europe mostly, and that it's closely related to Torvosaurus, and it's estimated to be about 8 meters or 26 feet long. Based on the sediment that it was found in, we can tell that it's from the Jurassic, And it's estimated to be about 166 to 163 million years old. Interestingly, it was found in marine sediment. So either it was swimming when it died or it got moved there before or after dying. But it was likely at least on the coast when it died because otherwise, why would it be close enough to get buried there? And that kind of makes you wonder if it's buried at sea, basically, maybe it was scavenging for dead sea life or possibly even hunting small animals on the beach or, or
1: taking a vacation
2: <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> taking a leisurely swim so it's pretty interesting unfortunately the remains are so sparse that there isn't too much we can tell from it but maybe they'll find more complete fossils soon Hut and his team mentioned that this is just now one of many megalosauroids from europe there are tons of them And I think he said there are at least nine different groups. It's just getting more and more complicated.
1: (laughs) that's a lot.
0: I'm surprised it's not getting lumped a little bit, because that's quite a bit of splitting, especially (laughs) with these very fragmentary remains. But I guess time will tell if they all stand up. If you're like me and you really enjoy reading scientific papers, you're in luck because the abstracts for SVP 2016 have just been released. If you don't remember, SVP is the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, and a ton of new information comes from each year's annual meeting. We'll post a link to their program in case you can't wait for our coverage of the actual event. And we're going to be there this year. It's at the end of October. It also coincides with our 100th episode, which might be a hint about some of the things we're going to do. And we're going to be covering a lot of the stories that come out of it.
1: Yeah, we're very excited and excited that we'll be able to meet a whole bunch of paleontologists.
0: Yeah, and see them talk about their research in person.
1: Next, according to Engadget, Google has worked with 50 natural history museums to add 150 interactive stories, 300,000 photos, and 30 virtual tours to its art and culture app. And this includes Berlin's Museum für Naturkunde, where you can see the Giraffe Titan in 360 degrees. And you can use the app on a computer or smartphone, or better yet, Google Cardboard if you have it. And I watched the video on YouTube just on my computer, and it's fairly interactive in that you can move the image around so you you see different parts of the museum, and it's really well done. It's really great. The Giraffe Titan comes to life and walks around, and even though I was just watching this on a laptop, it still felt like it was bending over and kind of looking at me a little bit intimidating. I can only imagine what that would feel like in VR.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. We're going to have to watch some of these things, Mm -hmm. especially because there are so many museums we want to go to, but sometimes it's not always practical to fly several thousand miles to go to a museum. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of museums you might want to go to, The results from the first 123 responses from our survey of what is your favorite dinosaur museum are in. And number one is the Royal T-Roll Museum in Drumheller, Canada. It got 19% of the vote. Number two is the American Museum of Natural History in New York City with 13% of the vote. Then the Field Museum in Chicago, also 13% of the vote. The Natural History Museum of London was a very close fourth with 12%, and the National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. got 7% of the vote.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks to everybody who participated. It's really wonderful to be able to engage with our listeners in this way.
0: Yep. And we're going to leave the survey up. It's probably a little bit buried in our tweets at this point, (laughs) (laughs) but I posted it on Reddit too, and that's where... Some of the votes came from, you can go to r slash dinosaurs and find it there, probably easier than anywhere else. And there were a ton of respondents from all over the place. A lot of museums just got like four or five votes, like the Museum for Naturkund got, I think, maybe two to three percent of the vote. And a lot of these iconic world museums were sort of in the running, but I think they're not always primarily English speaking countries. So I think that kind of hurt them.
1: Next, this summer, in the Krensoyarsk region in western Siberia, paleontologists from Tomsk State University found a cluster of dinosaurs, according to Siberian Times. Stefan Ivansov, who works at the university, said they believe the bones are from the early Cretaceous, and when they went on their expedition, they expected to find large dinosaurs like Allosaurus or a big Dromaeosaurid. Instead, they found a lot of infant raptors that had washed downstream to a dinosaur graveyard. Theories include that it's a, quote, Kind of kindergarten, an area where the babies appeared and spent the first stage of their life." Another idea is that these babies are actually a previously unknown dinosaur, or that the site where they found them is close to a refugium, where some dinosaurs from the Jurassic survived into the Cretaceous. The paleontologists also found some large herbivores, including the spike and some teeth of a stegosaurus. The fossils were sent to St. Petersburg to the Zoological Museum of the Russian Academy of Sciences to be studied.
0: That's really cool. I'm going to be excited to see what comes out of that.
1: Yeah. We've got a bunch of news from all different sites this week. So in July, George Phillips, paleontologist from the Mississippi Museum of Natural History, found a dinosaur tooth while digging in a Mississippi creek in New Albany, according to NBC. It's a ceratopsian tooth that probably died on a shoreline and was washed out to sea. And George Phillips said he doesn't expect to find more of this dinosaur. The tooth is being studied in Claremont, California. Next, I'm a little jealous of this one. There's an eight-year-old boy who found an Apatosaurus skull at the Moore Quarry, according to Nine News. He was on this dinosaur dig with his grandma, and after he found the skull, crews from nearby museums excavated it over a period of two months. It's a rare find, and there may only be three other nearly complete skulls found so far, apparently. That's crazy. So good for him. Next, it turns out that the Dinosaur Stampede National Monument in Queensland, Australia, which was established in 2004 at the Lark Quarry, actually had no stampede. And there are probably a lot of tracks there because the dinosaurs were swimming, according to National Geographic. Anthony Romilio and Stephen Salisbury said that the three-toed tracks of what was thought to be a large theropod, which... The original theory was that this theropod was scaring and chasing a bunch of dinosaurs, and that's why there were tracks there. But it may actually be from an herbivore similar to the Iguanodont mutaburosaurus. Not everybody agrees, though, including Richard Tholborn, who with Mary Wade studied the Lark Quarry in the 1970s and 80s and helped establish it as a national monument. And he said that their conclusions were based on, quote, fabricated data. Still, Romilio and his team think that there was a fast-moving river that dinosaurs had to ford, and this is based on sediments that show water moving at different depths and speeds. Both big and small dinosaurs crossed that area, and they ranged in size between 5 inches and 5 feet tall at the hip.
0: Huh. It's interesting that they think they can tell how tall the dinosaurs were based on the footprint.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: Either way, though, it's still really cool. I was a little bit worried with the statement that it's not actually a dinosaur stampede that it was going to be some other kind of animal or that it was fabricated or something. But if it's dinosaur swimming, that's almost cooler. Yeah. So either way, it's definitely worth being a national monument.
1: Next, the Te Manawa Museum in New Zealand is getting a dinosaur exhibit from the Natural History Museum in London, according to Stuff. The exhibition has nine animatronic dinosaurs, and there's a lot of pictures of dinosaurs without tails, like T-Rex and Stegosaurus, being lifted up on platforms. And the exhibit is called Dinosaur Encounter. It opens September 24th and runs until February 26th. So if you're in the area, you should check it out. Next, there's some bad news again on the X-Mouth Jurassic Safari Trail in the UK. Somebody decapitated a baby T-Rex on the trail, and we've talked about other vandalism here before, including damage to the baby Triceratops and Stegosaurus. So now there's going to be a meeting to figure out how to deal with these problems, according to X-Mouth Journal.
0: Jeez, what is wrong with these people? Leave the dinosaurs alone,
1: people. I know, they're just babies. Yeah. On a happier, cooler note... Billings Productions in Texas is this company, and they build animatronic dinosaurs for zoos and museums, according to Dallas News. There's a whole big feature about them. So they use steel and rubber, and they give dinosaurs the ability to move their heads, open and close their mouths, and move their eyes. And they typically rent their dinosaurs out for three months at a time, then touch them up and send them out again. The company was founded by a husband and wife team, Larry and Sandra Billings, more than 10 years ago, and they work mostly with zoos. Last year, for example, the Dallas Zoo had 20 animals on exhibit. So the couple started the company after working for a contract company in Singapore where they were sent to manage two dinosaurs in Irvine, California. That company dissolved and then the couple built their own. And in just four months, they built 60 dinosaurs and apparently were sleeping at their shop, which you can imagine 60 dinosaurs in four (laughs) months. Unfortunately, Larry passed away a few years ago, but his wife, Sandra, continues to grow the company. And the company is known as the Dinosaur Company or the Giant Bug Company. And they have made about 350 animals, 17 of them T-Rex alone. Mm. The pictures look pretty amazing. I especially like this one of a nest of baby pterosaurs who look like they're ready to eat, except they don't have eyes yet. And they're not painted, so you can still tell that they're rubbery, mm. especially with the artist holding a scalpel to one of the mouths.
0: That's funny. So they've made more complete T-Rex skulls than have been discovered.
1: (laughs) That's pretty crazy.
0: This week, while perusing the internet, I stumbled onto a custom dinosaur shirt maker on Etsy. His name is Joseph Fells, and he says he was frustrated with a lack of good dinosaur t-shirts, so he started making his own. He essentially paints the designs using bleach, which I had never heard of, so I reached out to him to learn a little bit more. He says he started with stencils but decided to start trying freehand, and he uses normal paint brushes, but old ones, since the bleach slowly ruins them. He also dilutes the bleach down so that the shirts aren't full of holes after just a couple washes, because apparently bleaching is not so good for clothing in large concentrations. Amazingly he can finish a shirt in about an hour, and they look really great when he's done because he's literally painting the outlines of all of the intricacies of the dinosaur skeletons and all the shirts feature articulated skulls or skeletons and he has examples on his website but since he does them freehand he'll do any dinosaur that you want if you just tell him you should check out his work or his store at josephfells.co.uk if you want to see some examples or buy something and like everything, there is an awesome subreddit for Bleach Shirts that he pointed out to me. And it's r slash Bleach Shirts. So if you want to see some sweet shirt art, I got sucked into it for maybe an hour today.
1: <laughs> There's a Reddit for everything.
0: There is. I love Reddit.
1: Next, the Suburban shared a recipe for a dinosaur dough craft. And it looks really cool. The recipe is for homemade Dough. Two cups flour, one cup salt, one cup water, and then you mix it together and you add food coloring if you want. Then you bake it at 250 degrees for three to four hours. Once the dough is made, you can press them into dinosaur bone sand toys, which is what they did, to make toes, teeth, eggs, and footprints. And then after the dough's baked, you can bury them in the dirt and dig them out with spoons and paintbrushes, and then you can feel like a real paleontologist. Although if I was doing this, I would just eat the bread.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So you bake dough and then you shape it?
1: No, you make the dough, you shape it, and then you bake it.
0: Oh, okay. For some reason, I was thinking you baked it first, and that would be pretty crazy.
1: No, that wouldn't make sense.
0: (laughs) Next up, there's a movie coming out called Z-Rex the Jurassic Dead, and there's a trailer and a poster that have been released. As usual, it's named after a T-Rex and the Jurassic era, despite T-Rex being from the Cretaceous. One of these days, someone will make a cheesy dinosaur movie and it'll say T-Rex something something, Cretaceous something. Maybe. Rather than always Jurassic.
1: Doesn't have the same ring to it.
0: Yeah, because it's not Jurassic Park. It's kind of hard to tell from the trailer, but it kind of looks like zombie T-Rex arrives on a meteorite, which is kind of (laughs) funny considering that, you know, dinosaurs got wiped out by a meteorite.
1: I think that's the point.
0: Yeah, I think so. It's pretty clever. And from the trailer, it looks like, aside from the zombie T-Rex, the main characters are hipsters and commandos, and they have to contend with possibly becoming zombies themselves, and they're like 28 Days Later style zombies, not Night of the Living Dead zombies. They're all very active and crazy. There's no release date yet, but we'll let you know when it comes out. Sounds interesting. I hope it's like Sharknado and not like Tammy and the (laughs) T-Rex. Time will tell.
1: Next, thanks to Patrick who shared this one with us via Facebook. According to Coming Soon, Hulu is making a Marvel series called Runaways, and it's about a group of teens whose parents are evil. The comic series that the show is based on, also has a genetically engineered dinosaur called Old Lace, though it's not clear yet if that dinosaur will be in the series, but I hope so.
0: And in video game news, you might remember that we talked about Horizon Zero Dawn a while back, and it has some dinosaur-like robots. Apparently it's considered a post-post-apocalyptic game, which I just love. (laughs) So you have post-apocalyptic, which is you're in a wasteland, and then post post apocalyptic as things are starting to rebuild, I guess.
1: Is there such a thing as post 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 apocalyptic?
0: Sure. I don't know. <laughs> I think you might just resort back to post apocalyptic at that point. Mm. They just released a new gameplay trailer that shows a giraffe titan like creature, which appears to have a giant antenna for a head. And in the gameplay trailer, they climb up the giraffe titan and. Then they hack into it to transmit data, it looks like you make it like a friendly transmitter with this big dish head. The game looks really fun and it's going to be released on February 28th, 2017. I think it's only on PlayStation though, so we'll have to find a friend to try it. (laughs) (laughs) And last in the news, there are a couple more details about Jurassic World 2. Colin Trevorrow said in an interview that Jurassic World, quote, isn't always going to be limited to theme parks, end quote, and that the dinosaur technology is going to be open source, which I think is awesome. Hopefully, there will be more than just killing machines in the following movies, but I'm not holding my breath since I doubt it's ever going to divert too far from its monster movie roots. And if there are a bunch of baby dinosaurs in people's homes, they'll probably just like Revolt and attack all their owners at some point or
1: something. Or they'll make cute pets. We don't know.
0: I hope so. That would be cool. And they're going to start filming on February 27th, 2017, in Hawaii, which is the day before that video game comes out. Interesting.
1: Lots of good things in February. I guess so. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process.
3: jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
0: And now we're going to jump into our interview with Dr. Brian Noble. Brian Noble is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Social Anthropology at Dalhousie University and author of the new book, Articulating Dinosaurs, which is all about dinosaurs, but from an anthropologist's perspective. So, jumping right in, the first question we always like to ask is Do you have a favorite dinosaur?
3: I think probably like many people who've had. You know, an affinity for dinosaurs through much of their life, and that's that's an awful lot of people. Really, <laughs> we kind of have an interest in all of them, and they just keep coming at us. But a couple of dinosaurs, which have been a little bit more eventful in my life, one of them probably is, uh, you know, relates to some work I had done in field expeditions to the Gobi Desert back in the, uh, the late 1980s, and that kind of dates me right away. <laughs> <laughs> so I was the director of the XTERRA Foundation, which was the organizing uh, agency behind the Canada-China Dinosaur Project back in the 1980s. And uh, during our expeditions, we went to the Junggar uh, Basin of uh, Northwestern China, and we're working in the Jurassic phases there, and then we worked in uh, Inner Mongolia, so the People's Republic of China side of the Mongolian frontier. Mm -hmm. And we were working in what's known as the Jadokta Formation. And I was quite fortunate one day when we were prospecting to come across a series of small teeth eroding from the rocks. And it turned out that these were teeth of the little juveniles Mm -hmm. of the armored dinosaur Pinacosaurus. And uh, Mm -hmm. the site then became... Quite a prominent one in the Canada-China Dinosaur Project, because we ended up finding the remains of, I can't recall how many, but I think it was up to about 14 uh, juveniles, probably all the same age cohorts. Perhaps the speculation was the same litter, and the taphonomy showed that they were actually a group of young dinosaurs that were quite likely trapped in a sandstorm. Hmm. And then a dune had covered them over as they rested uh, in the lee side of the of the dune. And then uh, probably they suffocated and died there. So it's a pretty gruesome kind of story. But the yeah. Nakosaur has always stuck with me as a, a pretty interesting dinosaur. And I recall even at one point there was a, a young kid by the name of Peter who had... His mom had gotten a hold of my name, and uh, Peter had actually created pictures of Panacosaurus and had sent it to me, and he was, I think, uh, seven years old at the time. So Panacosaurus is one of them. The other one is Troodon. Mm -hmm. Troodon, because it has been such a well-rehearsed and uh, well-known dinosaur from the late Cretaceous of Alberta, and for many years I worked in uh, Dinosaur Provincial Park and uh, troodon has become a rather celebrated creature from there cool
0: yeah so you've been working with dinosaurs for a really long time but you're an anthropologist <laughs> so how did that happen what came first is it that you've just loved both or did you get into dinosaurs through anthropology
3: you know i both end i mean they 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 probably came about together but You know, of course, like I said, when I was when I was a kid, like many kids, I was exposed to dinosaurs. I mean, I remember uh, when I was about seven years old, going to see a Godzilla film. And, uh, you know, Godzilla has always been this important figure in, in popular culture. But at the same time, when gift-giving time would come around, or when I go to the library, I would often be presented with uh, with dinosaur books, uh, children's books on dinosaurs. So, so that was there, and I think that's a grounding for many, as an anthropologist, to say, you know, middle-class children in uh, in North America, um, in Canada, and the United States. But the anthropology part of it came about later, once I was in, in university. I studied anthropology and did undergraduate work in the late 70s and early 80s, and then came away from working in anthropology, and over about a 10, 15-year period, I was working in museums. I worked with in the early development of the Royal Tyrrell Museum of Paleontology. Uh, I worked with the Provincial Museum in Alberta, I also organized this international project, the Canada-China Dinosaur Project, which entailed a lot of fundraising and bringing people together to make them realize that, that there were really interesting connections between the dinosaurs of Canada and the dinosaurs of China. It actually went in two directions. One aspect of it was about the Common dinosaurian forms that you would find in in the the late Cretaceous of Mongolia and, or northern China and the late Cretaceous of Alberta, but then the differentiation from the Jurassic critters that were found often in northwestern China. That project led me into led me into a lot of things related to the political history of dinosaurs. The work I'd done we had done with the Chinese. Put us in association with the Chinese Academy of Sciences, and I formed some really wonderful, warm relationships with with people at at the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology. Hmm. Yeah, well, it, it, you know, I could I could probably do an entire interview just on the Canada China Dinosaur Project. But when we started working on that in the this is about 1983, I had this idea that no one had gone back into the Gobi desert area to collect dinosaur material since since the 1930s nobody from North American Europe that is right mm-hmm. since the 1930s other than Soviet bloc paleontologists right um yeah. so so there were there were strong relations between there had been on again and off again strong relations between the Soviet Academy of Sciences and the Chinese Academy of Sciences. There had been some relations between the Polish Academy of Sciences. So people like Sofia kielin who was actually a mammologist, but was really, really core to the development of joint projects in the 60s with China. And a lot of those kind of had fallen by the wayside. So in the 1980s. I went to Phil Curry, and uh, this was not long after having been working with him in the early stages of the planning of the Royal Terrell Museum of Paleontology. And I, for all sorts of family reasons, did not move to Drumheller when they started up the museum in Drumheller, but I was involved in these key planning stages. And I said to Philip, you know, we've, we've formed a really strong working relationship and a friendship, really. And uh, I said, wouldn't it be interesting to bring together what you could imagine is the most exciting kind of dinosaur project and i could try and parlay that through public projects uh, exhibitions films books and so forth and then go out and try and raise the money for it and uh, so phil and i got that started really early in 1983 and i applied for some funding got some funding for this early funding for it and then in a matter of three years we had international agreements going and it was it was at a moment And this is really where where I started thinking hard about the relationship between politics and dinosaurs. It was at a moment when the relations between the Soviet Union and the United States, uh, between China and the United States, were quite strained. And we as Canadians were not quite caught into the spheres of power the same way. And we had this other history as Canadians of connection to the Chinese Academy of Sciences going back to its early days when Davidson Black the paleoanthropologist who famously worked on the the early specimens of what was called Peking man had been there in Beijing and helped to establish what later became the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology so we kind of had a we had a, an inroad and I realized that there's a you know there's a lot of chance in that there's a lot of you know Who's in the right place at the right time to create an influence over how the science can unfold? So I started thinking about it. Then, subsequently, I was also working, and this is, you know, after I had had my undergraduate degree and before I was doing any graduate studies in, in anthropology. I was also working very closely with Blackfoot people in in southern Alberta, the Biglani Blackfoot, also known as the the uh, the Northern Pikani, because there's Southern Biglani across the the 49th parallel in northwestern montana and those folks are all related and they speak the same language and so forth they're still there in their communities living there mm-hmm. and i was working with them on matters of repatriation museums and so forth so i've been working in museums on dinosaurs and we're working in museums with them on on their material culture now with the blackfoot I realized that in all the stories that the blackfoot were telling me they had stories of dinosaurs because they were living in the landscape that took in what's now Dinosaur Provincial Park or down in the Milk River area or in the, the front ranges of the Rockies to the south of where their their reserve is now, um, which is actually where a, a very famed specimen, the, the sort of black beauty specimen of T-Rex came from. Oh, yeah. The Blackfoot people knew of these bones that were in the ground, and they had stories about them. And the stories that they told were were various and some some quarters that people would speak of the the ancestors of the buffalo in other other people i spoke to ceremonial people would say well no those those bones are the remains of the first peoples before there were humans there was a another what they called race of of humans who were all killed in a giant flood by creator because they violated their obligations to, to create So the point being is that I realized that there are many stories and histories of what we come across in the world and begin to describe, and that there's no easy answer to what comes to count as the correct and truthful story. We have to really think about those in terms of their own histories and so forth. And the other thing that was quite interesting about the Blackfoot was that, as with many indigenous peoples across North America, you know, in spite of histories of colonialism, in spite of histories of, you know, reservations and reserves and and all sorts of ways that, you know, the state and the government have overtaken their lands, that they've sustained uh, really powerful understandings of different animals in their ceremonial life. So the Blackfoot have a whole host of different animals from not just buffalo, but eagles and owls and beaver and uh, weasels, all manner of animals that live in their territory that they have an association with. And I, I started thinking, well, what is it that is the difference between European and North American society and its engagement with animals and indigenous peoples? I mean, and if you start thinking about European and North American people, what are the, the animals that have the greatest prominence? And it's you know the cetaceans, like the big whales, right? The the sea mammals have a, a lot of prominence. Elephants have a lot of prominence. Uh, the the great apes, chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, and of course, then there's then there's this other one, dinosaurs. And so they have they've had this inordinate power to captivate us. And uh, so I began looking at the natural history associated with dinosaurs, and of course that. That takes us back to, uh, in particular, you know, the emergence of the, the scientific field of vertebrate paleontology and the out-of-comparative anatomy in the 19th century, mostly in Britain and in France, but uh, throughout Europe, and the very first... The very first representation of dinosaurs on a large, massive scale, uh, which were the reconstructions by Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins mm-hmm. in 1854 in Sydenham Park, um, and later on was uh, was renamed uh, Crystal Palace Park. And the as you know, the the image of those dinosaurs are so radically different than the image of the same dinosaurs: Iguanodon, Megalosaurus that we have today yeah. and so what's going on how much acceptance of the truth of the look of dinosaurs uh, were we engaging in in 1854 and how is that really different from the, the acceptance of the truth of dinosaurs that blackfoot people were engaging in so the, then you begin to it begins to cause your mind to to slow down and think a bit differently about how we even come up with their construction, what we know to be the outcome that we call dinosaurs, when in fact we've never even seen one apart from these remains that are coming out of the ground. So that was probably how it began. So you start seeing that that anthropology being the study of humans really offered an opening to think about, about science, about why we, why we embrace science and, and why we then become so Fascinated and even fixated on particular forms, such that they become so ubiquitous and powerful in our culture that we all know them. We know, we know, you know. You have eight-year-olds that have huge vocabularies uh, and being able to name, you know, dozens and dozens of of genera of dinosaurs, right? And uh, and they use it. They use it as a kind of power against their parents. Really, sometimes, right? To be able to say, "Look, I know this, and you don't." Yeah. Um, that's 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 extraordinary, and it's quite common, right? So, yeah, so those are some of the some of the origin stories there.
0: Yeah, it's it's always interesting to me how interconnected basically all the fields of science can be, and you get into one, and it can just open your mind to all these other aspects and interrelations and everything. It's really cool.
3: Yeah, that is, you know, and I think that is actually one of the core aspects of any any science or form of research is that on its edges, there's always other possibilities. Mm -hmm. It's the possibility of speculating and trying something else that's untried. And paleontology and anthropology share that in common.
0: Yeah. So your book's titled Articulating Dinosaurs. And I know because I read the book, but can you briefly explain what you mean by articulating and articulations?
3: Right. Well, Chris, the the word articulation will probably jump to the fore of the mind of many of the people that listen to your podcast around the idea of a specimen, right, or a skeleton of, of a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Uh, when all the bones are in their, their natural position, they are said to be articulated. And so I'm just going to put this aside as the as the kind of you know, more regular kind of understanding of articulation, and I'll move into what what I mean by it. When paleontologists find fossil material in the exposures where they work, quite often, of course, the material is eroding out of the rock, and and more often than not, it's disarticulated. It's not it's not lined up, and they have to have to bring it back together mm-hmm. once they return to the. To their laboratories and begin studying the material and there's a lot of preparation work and so forth in the labs to assure that the fossils are easy to work with and to be able to produce these articulations and then to reconstruct the morphology of the of the critter the idea of articulation that i am using and the one that you know the whole book is about articulation i'm actually trying to introduce an idea that is not usually thought about and i suppose the easiest the easiest way to think about it is if you think of the idea that there are fossil specimens that come from out of the earth, Mm -hmm. and paleontology is all about the collection of specimens, these, these materials that end up getting placed in cabinets, and then their provenance noted, and then they're studied and so forth. But over the entire history of paleontology, certainly starting from the 1850s, And you could go back farther once you get into illustrations and so forth. There has also been a spectacle component, right? That dinosaurs have been made public. And so the idea of articulation for me is to ask the question of how does that which we come to understand about the specimens articulate to or relate to that which we come to understand through these spectacles. Mm -hmm. And do they speak back and forth to one another? And my argument is that they do, and they're doing that always and already. So in fact, what's going on is any scientist, any paleontologist will work very, very hard to assure that they're only studying the specimen directly in front of them. But because they're human beings, because you and I are human beings, we can't help... But bring the stories from the past and the imaginings from the past and from our our general experience, because we go to exhibits, we go to movies, we've seen Godzilla, we've, we've looked at the King Kong movies, we've looked at comic books, we play video games. You cannot inoculate yourself. From all of those visions, all of those spectacle visions. So the book really takes on the question about the relationship between the specimen and the spectacle. And then it unpacks it and looks at that relation over and over and over again, and goes really deeply into the locations where a lot of those kinds of things often get worked out. So, you know, I mentioned museums, museum exhibits popular films, especially big blockbuster films like Jurassic Park, where the animation is informed not just by a group of animation experts, but also by paleontologists, people like Jack Horner and Paul Serena, who have been, Philip Curry, who have been consultants on the film. <laughs> so there's that relationship working, and it's working in, in those public places, but arguably it's also working every day when a paleontologist sits down to work on the individual specimens. So that's the idea of, of articulation. And I can give you ex- examples from the book of other ways that, you know, I've explored that idea, but but the book works through this whole idea of articulation, historically, and then particularly through the, um, the project on the Myasora people's sorum called the Myasaur Project, that was an exhibit at the Royal Ontario Museum. And that's where I really try and show the intricacies of the ways that these things get worked out in everyday interactions of paleontologists with marketing specialists, with animation specialists, with museum developers, writers, and, and so forth.
0: Yeah. So with the myosaur exhibit, did you get drawn to that because it was such a spectacle? I mean, reading about this museum exhibit from, I think it was in the late 90s, right? That's right. And it, it had so many things to look at. They had different hadrosaur bones, and they had a full hadrosaur specimen that they were in the process of excavating in like a real lab. And then they also had these huge screens where they had interpretations of what they were probably moving like and what they looked like and models galore and everything like that. Is that why you wanted to see how people interacted with that and try to figure out what was interacting? Or did something else lead you to study that particular exhibit?
3: Well, you've captured it quite well. I mean, just in your in your description, it was an exhibit that brought together a specimen, a particular specimen, this uh, one individual specimen that was collected in Montana and brought to Toronto for the Royal Ontario Museum, and it was also for its time quite an experiment in the the use of fairly sophisticated animation and media technology to help make that more real for for the visiting public. But Initially, and this is kind of a common tale for anthropologists that do ethnographic work, you might know that the most common tool in anthropological research is what we call ethnography. And that is the effort to go and immerse yourself in the, the lives, work and practices of people so that you develop an intimacy, what some people will call a native Point of view and intimacy. So I wanted to, I had to immerse myself, find a place to immerse myself mm. where I could actually, in the fairest and most reasonable way, get to know why and how an exhibit would develop the way it would develop. The best way to do that would be to f- find a museum that would welcome me in and where they had a project underway where this could be observed and where I could speak with the people that were involved. And uh, as it turned out, I, you know, just by chance, I was looking at. And this really goes to, again, this, this kind of accidents of history. I was trying to make a decision about where I would do my PhD work. And one option that came up was to work at the Terrell Museum of Paleontology. But my partner uh, at that time wanted to uh, study law. And she had a, an opening to study law at, in Toronto at a school called the Osgood Law School. And so I I then contacted people at the Royal Ontario Museum and said said look you know I could do this study at the Royal Tyrrell Museum in Drumheller I could do it here, and they were extremely welcoming and it worked out very well. So by chance I went I went to to that. And if I had gone to the Royal Tyrrell Museum, I would not have written a book this day on People Peeblesorum. I probably would have written something say about uh, ceratopsians mm-hmm. because the the Tyrrell Museum is well known for for the, uh, the the wonderful bone beds from Dinosaur Provincial Park of uh, Centrosaurus. And, um, but that would have been a very different story, as you can quite imagine. Yeah. And Centrosaurus takes us, even the name is very different than Myasaur. Myasaur, the good mother lizard. Suddenly we're opening up all of these marvelous cultural associations and gendered associations by thinking about Myasaur, the good mother lizard, which is the, uh, the gloss of it. So I ended up in, in Toronto at the Royal Ontario Museum. And the Meister Project exhibit had been open for a little over a year, actually. And so when I arrived, the laboratory where the specimen was being prepared was still in place. And the large video exhibits that you're talking about, which were interactive media exhibits, were in place. And the exhibit had already been built. But what I did was I then got an invitation to go situate myself in the vertebrate paleontology department at the Royal Ontario Museum. And they gave me a little desk in the middle of the, um, uh, the department space with sort of collections cabinets around me and a row of offices nearby. There was a recently, it was quite wonderful historically because uh, this sort of founding figure, one of the founding figures of Canadian vertebrate paleontology, Loris Russell, had just only recently passed away. And his office was just eight feet away from mine. And I was asked actually to assist, to assist them in, in helping to sort through some of his files, which was wonderful for me, because suddenly I was doing something that anthropologists dream of doing, which is, which is looking at the deeper history. Russell had actually collected fossils in western canada back in the 1920s and had worked with the sternberg family and so he was you know really a, a sort of a a looming giant in the in the history of north american dinosaur paleontology there were there were other paleomologists there there were the collections uh, specialists there uh, there were technicians who were who were working on the specimens and i had a paleontologist the dinosaur paleontologist who was behind this exhibit. And I ended up working quite closely with him throughout. So when I was able to speak to the paleontologists, I was able to find out, you know, how did this exhibit come into being? What were the institutional decisions? How did it relate to your scientific interests? The name of the paleontologist, which is actually a pseudonym, and for anybody that actually wanted to know who it is, I'm sure they could go back and and simply find out who the who this individual is. the name that that I used as a pseudonym was Andreas Henson and Henson was you know an individual who had i learned like many paleontologists who I'd met over the years over and over again I would learn through this interaction with paleontologists I learned from Henson that Just like me, they, since they were young, had been looking at illustrated books of dinosaurs. They they knew the work of Charles Knight. They knew the illustrations of Zdenek Burian. Those images were part of their constitution of how they thought of things. Just like me, and for a long time, I didn't know who they were. They were even more nerdy about dinosaurs than I was, if anything, right? Uh, But they they had they had studied this and and henson was wonderful i mean we would we would go regularly for coffees and uh you know he came over to my house my apartment sometimes sometimes went over to his apartment sometimes we just meet in his office or we go through the labs we go through the collections he would then explain to me the entire history from a particular perspective of the emergence of this one exhibit Uh, in the back of my mind were these this research question well how is it that He is holding on to an idea of how to come up with a finished visualization of Mayasura, while at the same time being influenced by all of the other things that he's seen around him historically, what he's looked at in illustrations. If you go to the Society of Paleontology meetings, which is the American Society, it's effectively the the largest and most, most influential uh, scholarly Society for, for the study of dinosaurs you go to those meetings and you're not just surrounded by paleontologists coming to present the work from either you know new specimens they come across or new new species that they want to describe or cladograms of, of these or the uh, aspects of the biology and physiology you're also encountering often dozens of uh, illustrators who are there. There are exhibits, and these illustrations are around the paleontologists all the time. They're watching movies. And Henson said that, you know, it really is this constant positioning of yourself around these things. But then you always return to the specimen. You always return to the close study of the specimen. You know, a deep care for, for getting it right And one of the impetuses with the Myasur project, which I think was really stood it apart from a lot of exhibits that were available at the time, was that they made a huge commitment to trying to bring that process of understanding the specimen as it is prepared out of the matrix, out of the blocks that they brought from from Montana to the Royal Ontario Museum is to bring it into the into the public and then to allow the public to see precisely how that was done and the way they did that was by building a laboratory which caused all sorts of all sorts of problems institutionally because museum display spaces are not made for having laboratories with volatile chemicals in them, with, with uh, instruments that can send little shards of matrix all over the place where there's dust coming up and where the, the technician has to have a mask on and uh, there are ventilation systems. So basically you have this bulletproof room with the, with the technician, the preparator working inside on the specimen. And that was what they sought to achieve, was to bring that there. And that then creates, so there was the specimen part of the articulation question I was asking about. And then they had the separate theater, which was the the a theater, which had what were then some of the best CGI animations, notwithstanding Spielberg's Jurassic Park, <laughs> <laughs> which had even better animations. And I have to say this, that many dinosaur paleontologists that I spoke to in the uh, early 90s uh, after jurassic park came out in 1993 said look spielberg has surpassed anything we can do Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, and it's because of this huge influx of monies into the production of these animated images
2: yeah
3: so there was the the, so the question became well well what's going on in the articulation and from there you really get into some of the the very meaty stuff that that anthropologists begin to ask because you start learning what meanings are what meanings what kind of trade is there between this what kind of arguments and contests are coming out between various workers in the museum and what image is going to emerge what practices are going to emerge that people are going to end up living with whether the visitors, scientists, the scientific community, whoever, are going to end up living with, and how are these things going to become palpable in our lives? And that was, that was what the project eventually you know, explored. So there's some deeper understandings that came as a result of having done that, especially when I contrasted what was going on in the Myosaur project with some research I had been doing about the American Museum of Natural History and the emergence of Tyrannosaurus rex at the turn of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century particularly in the work of Henry Fairfield Osborn and uh, Barnum Brown and others at the American Museum of Natural History. So different meanings at a different moment.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's fascinating just how much things like Jurassic Park and other media influence people. I know that Sabrina, my co-host and wife, um, and I both got into dinosaurs because of movies like Land Before Time and Jurassic Park and things like that that we saw (laughs) when we were young. And... I know a lot of people in earlier generations were inspired by movies like King Kong, where you had this epic battle of things that you could barely even imagine on some faraway island and all this. What do you think the early depictions of dinosaurs like T-Rex in King Kong did to influence how we see dinosaurs?
3: Yeah, so going back to that time period when RKO came out with the King Kong movie. The principal animator who did the, the animation for that film was a fellow by the name of Willis O'Brien. And O'Brien is almost considered a, uh, the forefather for anybody that does creature animation uh, in the world of working with stop-motion animation. And at that moment, if you think about it, in the 1930s, he could only work with what the best knowledge was that was available at that time. Not even what the best knowledge was, what the what the accumulated knowledge was, if you like. And that accumulated knowledge that he drew upon to animate what then was by far and away the most dramatic animation and what many people would say the most realistic animation of T-Rex was that which came from the studies that took place at the American Museum of Natural History, also at the National Museum of Natural History in uh, the Smithsonian in uh, in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And he was working in conversation with people like Barnum Brown, uh, who had actually collected many of the original specimens of T. rex. So, So Willis O'Brien had to draw upon that which was the dominant Set of representations. If you look, if you look at the the classic image of the battle between Tyrannosaurus Rex and King Kong on Skull Island in the in the midst of that movie, you'll see that, for instance, and this is just this is just a minor detail, is because I was trying to go a little bit deeper than just the, the detail of the anatomy, but but the the T Rex has three claws at the front. So of course, more recently, after mo- more study of T Rex. Paleontologists, of course, have determined that that it, it was a two-clawed critter, not a three-clawed critter. Allosaurus, prior to that, and the Jurassic critter was had three claws, but it only had two claws. So that was something that was really an inflection of its moment. But the thing that really has interested me, much as the, my interest in myosaura developed around this question of gender, role, was why they had a dinosaur called. Tyrannosaurus Rex, which in its gloss means king of the tyrant Saurians, mm-hmm. king of the tyrant lizards, right? So a ver- in contrast to Myosaurian, you know, that's a very, very masculine, macho kind of, of, uh, of figure. And what when you have that kind of a representation what does that do to the social and political imagination of anybody around you? Right. What this led me to do was to try and unpack, and is a word that you hear anthropologists saying who do this, this immersive ethnographic work, but we also do immersive ethno historical. We try and look at what was going on in the situation. What were the relations among many different individuals at the time? And, what I learned was some pretty powerful things about the influence of a fellow who was considered you know, the founding figure of the Society of Vertebrate Paleontologists, who was Henry Fairfield Osborne. Yeah. That, that, and Osborne's a pretty, very, very interesting and, and now, in, in retrospect, very controversial figure. He had a very strong uh, sense of the primacy and supremacy of white races uh, at that time, based on some Galtonian, uh, Lamarckian forms of thought that existed at the time. He was networked into international uh, eugenics circuits. He was as director of the American Museum of Natural History in New York. He was also constantly trying to do what directors of museums often do, which is to drum up, financial support sponsors, those who will give gifts and donations. And what I learned was that there was this meshing together of his eugenics and hierarchical evolutionary thought and his thinking about Tyrannosaurus Rex. So Tyrannosaurus Rex was this apical ultimate creature. And that naming, if you look through the book, you'll see that there's actually a very particular history of the naming of of the dinosaur. And that then is what has gotten stuck in our imagination. So the question now is, how much does that carry forward? How much does the supremacy of T-Rex communicate to Americans the supremacy of Of being white, right? I mean, this is this was a this was part of. If you look really hard, there's a beautiful book by Ronald Ranger, an historian, who looked at very specifically Osborne's legacy, and it was called "An Agenda for Antiquity." And in it, in it, he showed that Osborne was making every effort to try and advance a particular view of America, which actually, in a hierarchical sense, actually was a very racist Mm -hmm. and gendered view of America so when you start thinking about paleontology and dinosaurs, so so we innocently take the science of the moment, and nobody would have challenged, nobody would have challenged Henry Fairfield Osborne. I mean, he had He had people like Matthews and Gregory around him, the leading thinkers in paleontology of the moment. And they were not challenging him on this kind of thinking. Barnum Brown didn't challenge him. They channeled it. They brought it forward. You know, to use the, the geological metaphor, it became sedimented into our society and culture so that it became preserved. It wasn't until really the 1970s with the work of Ostrom and Bakker that some of the more ingrained notions about T-Rex started to come undone. So the iconology of T-Rex started to shift in the, the moment when, as Adrian Desmond you know, referred to it, hot-blooded dinosaur, the endothermy debate started coming about. That ricocheted then back up to some older visions of T-Rex, which came from uh, Edward Drinker Cope, who actually was a teacher for, for Osborne about the energetics of T-Rex. So very complex stories and then all of this then, you know, starts leading you to think about well what is the what are what's the political dimension of the very work that paleontologists are doing and the the creatures that they've materialized around us and that have become so everyday in our world.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to me the whole idea of T-Rex kind of being the supreme dinosaur and I see that in discussions about who would win in a fight and there's always people like vehemently <laughs> arguing for T-Rex and then yeah. in video games too i see you know usually if you're ever fighting dinosaurs in video games which seems to be the main thing you ever do with dinosaurs in video games they <laughs> <laughs> yeah they, they'll have a T-Rex and that'll be like the biggest baddest battle and you know it's typically the most strong sometimes they do Uh, Giganotosaurus now too just because it's like I think it's mostly because it looks so similar to T-Rex to be honest but do you think that this whole battling dinosaurs comes from this colonizing spirit that's been kind of intermixed with dinosaurs or is it just kind of a natural anthropology feature that if there's a big scary animal you have to kill it?
3: (laughs) That's very interesting. You know, I think that there's a, there's a lot at play. But from the standpoint of an anthropologist, you know, what you begin to understand is that the understanding of any scientific reanimation is part of what the science historian, feminist critical science historian Donna Haraway would call an implosion of forces, right? There's so much that is at play at any one moment. So in the 1910s and 20s, the American Museum of Natural History was moving forward to the first major public display of Tyrannosaurus after the early studies of it. And at the same time, there was this intersection with popular literature. Uh, and in particular, I point in the book to Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World. And there you see the same kind of hierarchies formulating. And then then you look into, if you start unpacking the way that the American Museum of Natural History was organized, you you look at the stories within The Lost World. One of the most popular books, of course, Doyle of Sherlock Holmes fame, Wrote these books, which are, in the sense, like Shakespeare, in so far as they're part of the public imaginary, and at least in the English language world, but also translated many other, part of the public imaginary, and it becomes so, so infused in our society, so infused in our in our way of thinking, that there's an easy adoption of all of the logics, the gender rationalities, the racial rationalities, and this kind of fight culture. You know this this kind of kind of extreme carnivory and a, a kind of form of power, right? Gets built right into it and circulated in popular fiction, circulated in movie making, circulated in the scientific work. And if you if you scratch you scratch around, you will find those in vertebrate paleontology who still hold on to that. I'm sure they would they would argue they would say, well, no, we're we're speaking only to the evidence right? We're speaking only to the fossil material. But one cannot extract this from all of those contexts. So my, my sense would be to pay stronger attention to all of those. So this is where the word articulation comes in, is how was and is the work of Henry Fairfield Osborne and Willis O'Brien and RKO and the funding of the American Museum of Natural History, which led to all sorts of connections to really wealthy New York-based capitalists. How do those all fit together? And how do you come out of that and see the emerging of this this kind of subculture, if you like, Hmm. of carnivory, aggressive uh, dominance and so forth? And how hard is it to shake that, right? It recirculates. Now, when gaming comes along, and you've got video gaming, whether it's online gaming, gaming, or or handheld devices, and it's still it's still present there, right, mm-hmm. in a in a really dominant way, then you can see that that I refer to it as the recirculation of these scenarios. It's
0: like an echo chamber,
3: <laughs> like the echo chamber. But the thing to remember, and I think that this is the reason why I, I've enjoyed working so much with paleontologists, is that is that I know paleontologists care, right? All the paleontologists I've known do not want to be kind of caught up in the sweep of that. They they want to pay attention. Andreas Henson wanted constantly, and he, he always told me about this, and I mean, I still t- stay in touch with him, that he wanted to understand what was going on in popular culture. And he was always caught in trying to figure out what's the dynamic between the choices we make in paleontology. When he made the choice to go with Mayasura at the Royal Ontario Museum, it was in part by accident, in part by design. The accident was that the budget that they had to produce this exhibit was limited. Hmm. They only had, they said, the the powers that be at the institution said, we only have like $300,000 to do this thing, uh, or $500,000 I think was the ultimate budget for this. And he had wanted to go off to Mongolia and collect a specimen through the paleontology officials in Ulaanbaatar of a tarbosaurus. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a direct relative of Albertosaurus, you know, another one of these great tyrannosaurids. And he wanted to do this display. And he thought the reason to do this was because it would be big and carnivorous and and there would be public engagement. So that would have been a recirculation, right? Mm -hmm. But the powers that be said, no. They said, no, we can't fork out that kind of money right now. We just don't have the, the budget for it. So they said, look around more locally. Well, as it turned out, uh, instead of doing this expedition to go and collect the tarbosaur, and since his hands were sort of tied, he started looking around the North American marketplace. And then he found, he learned about this, this excellent specimen, a virtually complete specimen of peeblesorum, And then he started thinking, well, I know the story of peeblesorum, and I know Jack Horner's engagement with it and i know jack horner's work on it and jack horner become really quite famous through through the study and rightly so the study and examination of nesting behaviors and uh the ontogeny the growth of uh hadrosaurid dinosaurs from eggs to hatchlings to juveniles and so forth all of this was really quite an interesting thing and then he said well you know actually maybe if we Use this. Maybe if we work with this, we will actually begin to interrupt the narrative, uh, as he put it, out of the the giant bloodthirsty meat-eating critters, or the long green things. Is it were <laughs> his words? The long green things eating these these images of these sauropods that were you know uniform in color and just walking around munching on weeds in swamps, <laughs> because because he was he was taking on the public imaginary. So that leads to a really important understanding about how science is integrated in society, how decisions get made, and they're often contingent, right? They're often contingent, and they're accidental. You know, where you are, who makes the decisions, how they're making decisions at a particular moment when certain ideas and certain material things are in circulation. And they came up with uh, Mayasura, and in many ways, what it did was it it appealed to the audiences that then came to the museum because in the 1990s and the early 2000s, even to this day, most visitors are very savvy about dinosaurs and they, they know a lot about them. And you can't have dinosaurs that are all male. It just doesn't work <laughs> from a reproductive standpoint, right? In sort of fundamental biological thought. So when myosaur comes along, The idea of reproduction then begins to open up the question of the presence of genders, the presence of sexes in these dinosaurs in ways that that the masculinist racial kind of work that Osborne was doing through T-Rex just couldn't make happen. So in many ways, I think that the choice of Henson and then the working of all of the players, and, and this is really, you know, there's 250 pages of the text are really about the intricacy of, of the discussions between the interpreters and the and the two two-dimensional designers and the the technical animators and all of the different visionaries about the arguments the micro arguments that happened that eventually led to a particular set of knowledges about the um, the gendered relations the familial and kind of kin relations of of Mayasura and how they then meshed with what the public culture of the moment uh, was and is at this time.
0: Yeah. When you mentioned the purchasing of myosaur instead of a tarbosaurus, it reminded me of a recent hadrosaur that sold for $80,000, and I think it was almost completely articulated. It had almost all its bones. And I was kind of surprised that the myosaur, the Royal Ontario Museum, bought cost as much as it did, even though similar, you know, large dinosaurs like Sue went for way more money than that. But since T-Rex is typically so much more valuable from a museum perspective, do you know why the dinosaur known as Henrietta, the one that the Royal (laughs) Ontario Museum has, was ultimately so expensive? Was there anything about it in like the culture? Do you think it was this good mother narrative that went along with it that gave it extra value?
3: I think my guess is, and, I, and I, now I'm speculating because I, I don't think I asked that particular question because there were not that many complete specimens of hadrosaurs, duckbill dinosaurs on the fossil buying market. So it depends on when you enter the market, mm. right? And this is a market, right? And this is something we have to remember. Now fossils, dinosaur fossils are part of the marketplace.
0: Unfortunately.
3: Unfortunately, you know, and, there's, and there's, a, there's a lot of really excellent work going on among paleontologists, and there has been, and I think Sue probably triggered this as much as, as, uh, as any other individual specimen or event. A lot of concern and hard work going on related to trying to keep these uh, magnificent specimens out of the market circuits. But that doesn't—that hasn't been working, right? It actually has the—if anything, there's been markets acceleration. So if you were, you know, if you're a, a certain kind of theorist of the of the market, you would say, well, it's about supply. That there are probably more specimens, and there's probably a stronger black market of how to sort specimens right now than there, there was at the time. And this was not done through the black market. It was done through official mm-hmm. markets, right? Just as Sue was. Sue, while Sue is, <laughs> Sue is a very complicated story, it's, yeah. it's, it's almost a mythic story in its own. The point with Sue is that, it, that everybody was working to make it seem like it was a legitimate sale done through proper legal regulations and mm-hmm. so forth. But in the case of this specimen of Myasura, there was a regulated purchase, a right to extract the specimen from the Southern Blackfeet Reservation in northwestern Montana, and a particular collecting company had had acquired it. They used highly professional techniques for extracting it, and the specimen itself was virtually complete. Hmm. There was even talk early on that in the blocks, there might possibly be remains of a juvenile or an infant. So that became quite attractive. As it turned out, as they prepared it, they discovered that there, there was no young dinosaur, only the specimen of the, of the adult.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that if there aren't a lot of legitimate copies to be bought and you don't want to enter the black market, that the price would go way up. Do you think there's a reason why you mentioned that Henrietta, I like to call them by their goofy names, uh, was discovered on Native American land? And so was Sue, the T-Rex, that's probably the most one of the most famous specimens ever. But nobody really seems to know that. Is there a reason that museums don't really mention where the dinosaurs came from or...
3: Is, you know, so, so that's, you know, it's a really interesting question. And it's a point that I try to make later in the book, that that's an aspect of articulation, right? So that's a part of the story that has been bracketed out. Mm-hmm. And what might be more powerful as an educational and learning engagement is if the public would actually be led to participate in those stories, because that's where it gets really quite interesting. You know, it makes me think about questions of like, well, what what were the lands that the U.S. government or in, in Canada, the Canadian government were setting aside in a colonial system, historical system, as reservation land for indigenous peoples? And quite often it would be land that would not be productive. So as a consequence, you know, you're in you're in South Dakota, Mm -hmm. uh, you're in Sioux territory. You know, there there are bad lands there. In Montana, there are bad lands there. So those are the lands. So as it turns out, the the reservation land is where these First Peoples have been sequestered. So there's a first point in it. And the other thing that you'll come to understand is, and this is true in America as it is in Canada that we're both, and this is another piece of my anthropological training, we're both settler state nations, right? There, there were settlers that came from Europe, established themselves here in Canada, they kept the association with the crown, with the queen. In America, famously, there was a, something called the War of Independence, the indep- <laughs> independence of 1776, and Americans went their own way. But in both cases, you know, these European people came and settled the land and the indigenous peoples who were here before had that land overtaken from them. As a consequence, what's happened is in their reservation system, whether it's in Canada or the United States, you see that many of the communities are quite poor. This is an interesting story. You know, if they're poor and they have fossils on their land and your family's poor, why wouldn't you think about pointing to people that these specimens are there, these fossils are there, bringing them in, and then seeing if there's a way to actually, you know, bring some sort of economic advantage to your community mm. uh, to help, help, help deal with the question of poverty. I mean, I can't, I can't say, but I think that's a really interesting path to think about, about all this. I suppose one of the other things is that museums, because they're dealing with one exhibit, they have to be quite spare. Some of it's got to do with their own resources available mm. to them. How much can you say if you've got a 5,000 square foot, a 500 square meter uh, exhibit space? How much budget do you have? So I was telling you about the MISER project. They had a half a million dollars to do this whole thing. 200,000 of it got eaten up just in the acquisition of the specimen. How much resources are then available? So all of this, all of this ultimately leads to the outcome that we encounter in exhibits. And we, we don't know what's behind it. In, in, in anthropology of science, we, we refer to this as a black box, right? We look at something in a museum, it's presented to us. Because we know it's a museum, we know it's authoritative, we know there's curators, we know they're funded by the state, we know they're doing real science, and we accept it as a matter of fact, a matter of truth. When in fa- and and Henson was very very explicit about this that paleontologists are often thought of as this, this uh, these kind what does he say the kindly old men who would come forward and and be asked to speak the truth to the world yeah but as soon as you know it's a black box so if, if we think of every dinosaur any dinosaur we can do this kind of unpacking of the articulations to worlds of social relations, to economic worlds, to the chance of somebody in a particular place at a particular time, to a certain kind of political moment, as in the moment of Henry Fairfield Osborne, who was advancing a particular agenda, or the moment of Jack Horner. And interestingly, Horner, you know, at the time that he gave the name Mayasura to Mayasura Peoplesorum, the, the good mother lizard, it was also the moment of, the, of second wave feminism right there was a move in america where uh, the feminist movement was rising that women were suddenly women women had been excluded even from paleontology by and large i remember going in the 1990s to uh, to meetings in the 2000s to meetings of the society of vertebrate paleontology to learn that there were increasing numbers of female vertebrate paleontologists Working in the field, and I remember one very amusing moment when uh, uh, the question was being asked in in the meeting about you know why there aren't as many women. And some one of the male paleontologists said, "Well, you know, it's very tough, difficult uh, field work." You know, and uh, mm-hmm. women just don't have that. You know, it's a, it's a very lame. You know, but what are they recirculating? They're recirculating the Lost World. They're recirculating the Barnum Brown adventure story of masculinist adventure and strength and so forth. But the, the irony of it was, is that was that in the next platform presentation, there was a specimen that was being r- removed from a field site. And the paleontologist who was in charge of it, a man, happened to be very, very slight and very small, under five feet tall, and, uh, you know, really not a powerful masculinist, you know, figure. And in his slide images, he showed this, this Sikorsky helicopter
2: mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> that was lifting the jacketed specimen out of the ground. And, and I just thought that undoes the argument <laughs> about embodied power and the ability to participate in this. So the history, the history really, if we can begin to sort of face how the articulation of the social and the specimen and the the spectacle at any moment, we can come to, I think, a better grasp of why certain dinosaurs rise to the fore at certain moments, why they fade away at other times, why there's, there can be a shift from, from a, you know, a, a, a sort of frightening, carnivorous, aggressive T-Rex to a scavenging T-Rex, um, why suddenly we can have male and female uh, Tyrannosauruses. And that really opens up the question of the speculative possibility of, of dinosaurs. The last chapter in my book, I use the phrase, another Mesozoic is possible. And it's quite pointed. It's to say that depending on what the issue of moment is today, we could see a shift in paleontological work in another direction. And I I point to how, for instance, there's been a rise in interest in paleobiogeography around climate change and whether the models from the Mesozoic in dinosaur paleobiogeography can speak to us about our current moment. But the reason we're asking those questions are in part because we're situated in the current moment. We're asking those questions because they're salient now,
2: mm-hmm.
3: much as Osborne was asking certain kinds of questions that were salient then. That we now look back on and we just think, "Let's hope we never ask the questions of that sort again." Right? Yeah. Um, or Horner in his moment, and and so forth. So, so that's the to me the the great promise of dinosaurs um, is that uh, as the University of Chicago cultural theorists said they're the, they're the totem animal of modernity and they're also the, the canary in the coal mine there. If you look at what is being said in, in vertebrate paleontology about dinosaurs and you begin to unpack it, you often realize they're saying something about society right now and that's a story of articulation. Hmm.
0: So real quick I wanted to ask, you mentioned how people kind of look to paleontologists and scientists to come out and just say the truth and exactly, you know, the definitive answer about anything. And in the book, you kind of outline that there were curatorial decisions, basically, because they couldn't show any uncertainty. And as a skeptic, that really bugged me, because it was (laughs) like you're knowingly misleading people and you're kind of almost going anti-critical thinking by you know not showing the scientific debate that's going on and it kind of you know it seems like history looks poorly on that kind of thing when you are so certain about some dinosaur being depicted a certain way and then it turns out to be wrong You, you know you don't have much to hide behind but I've seen one example I can think of at the Natural History Museum of Utah where they talk about the Cleveland Lloyd Dinosaur Quarry and how there are multiple explanations of how all of these allosaurids and some sort of potential prey mm-hmm. were found all mixed up in a huge jumble and how they could have gotten there in multiple different ways and they kind of had a voting mechanism for how you could put your own opinion into it if I think this one's the most likely. Do you see that kind of thing very often in museums or can you think of a good way that we could kind of present to the public, you know, right now we think that sauropods or like Giraffatitan was more upright, but there's this ongoing debate that maybe blood pressure or other issues would mean that it might have had to have its neck more horizontal or is it just is it too tall of an order to ask with the limited space that museums have to present multiple viewpoints of a single animal
3: you, you know if i actually think that that comment probably was because of the moment right is the paleontologist in that instance was really kind of working on the cutting edge of the of the moment and was experimenting and exploring something that hadn't really been tried i mean at the same moment i remember uh, going to the american museum of natural history in new york and seeing their new cladistics exhibit Mm -hmm. and cladistics was just becoming i mean it was it was well established in dinosaur paleobiology and paleobiology more generally but it was it was one of the first times that somebody was beginning to put it out there in a display so there was a lot of stuff that was kind of being tried. It was the new movement was emerging at that time. One of the hugest contrasts between what was going on at, at the Royal Ontario Museum, and I would argue that was going on in, in New York, and is going on in smaller dinosaur museums, the Tyrrell Museum of Paleontology, museums in Britain and Europe that were interested in dinosaurs, that the, di- the conversation was moving because of the history of display work away from what I refer to in the book, a kind of more Oligarchic or dictatorial mm-hmm. mode of presentation. Osborne said, and then he dictated what would go on display. And T Rex was going to look a particular way, and all of the staff would fall in line. Even through the Myasur project, you saw the beginning of a much more what I would call dialogical engagement. That the, you saw the rise of interpreters as having more important roles in it, but you also saw the rise of the marketeers. Who are pressing things in a particular direction. And I feel like with the paleontologists, the curators, that that they've been disempowered somewhat in this, hmm. and that they're trying to stay in the game. And I think it's really important that they stay in the game. I think that I think we need to have that. But the the promise of the current moment is that I think things like handheld technology, you know, internet-mediated information all of which is highly interactive, right? I mean, I I teach students, I work with interactive media in in my teaching all the time. My children have interactive media. media. They use Pokemon Go, and Pokemon (laughs) Go is is loaded with critters who have their own kind of classification system, not unlike dinosaurs. In fact, I've I've seen there's some wonderful papers on the cladistics of Pokemon.
0: Oh, that's funny.
3: I think I've, I've tweeted on this in the past. But we're at a moment where I think that the interaction of the curatorial thinkers with the media thinkers is producing new dialogues that might allow for the infilling. So it doesn't have to happen just inside the exhibit. It's whether the exhibit can generate a set of connections out to all of the other media. So the even your podcast is a way to extend to larger communities the possibility and ways of thinking and, and your, you know your podcast ranges in a lot of different directions it's really quite rich and that's part of it so that's part of what's now being articulated is these really new sets of dialogues and for museum exhibit developers they have to really be thinking in in a much more dynamic way hmm. i will say this is that as a consequence One of the biggest things to watch out for that I believe many paleontologists are concerned about, it's the same concern about the specimens going into the marketplace, is if you see the increasing kind of commercialization of the fossil trading market, then what you're going to end up with is the end of museums, right? Because Disney could just do it. Or, you know, commercial theme parks and so forth could just do it. And it could be all done through movies. And the, the place of this slow, intensive, smart, thoughtful, cumulative work, what the philosopher of science Isabel Stengers would call, you know, research that is proper to their vocation, right? That that could get really dissipated. And I think that would be quite a tragedy. Mm-hmm. So my my hope is is that the that the dialogues actually are going to intensify. Um, my my hope is is that paleontologists will, will be as outraged as you are in reading the idea that we need, to, we need to disconnect ourselves. Rather, what becomes more important is that we need to connect ourselves. Yeah, right? And the stronger the connection is both to the specimen and to recognizing what the spectacle is doing is, is what's going to, to allow our deep, research, scholarly, engaged uh, wondering and research involvements to, to really shine through. And so we'll find, I think we will find some pretty interesting paleontology. And if that, that pattern is followed and museums are still supported and they, they network themselves properly in the world that way that I think we'll see some, the continuation and expansion and transformation museums in ways that will allow, you know, more of this to become quite cogent in our lives.
0: Yeah, I like the idea of using more interactive, like you say, the handheld media gives you so many more opportunities to present much more information than you could otherwise. That's a good idea. You mentioned Disney World, and I know in your book you said (laughs) that the T-Rex Sioux was actually partially prepared at Disney World. Did that actually happen?
3: Yes. And in fact, as it turns out, that one of the principal preparators of uh, the myosaurus specimen, at the Royal Ontario Museum was uh, after he had done work at the at the museum. It fell name of Tim Fedak. He was hired as a preparator to do the preparation work by Disney.
0: It's nice that they hired a real paleontologist and didn't just <laughs> <laughs> throw it out there for anybody to pick at or something.
3: Yeah, but I mean the story is fascinating because there's that there's that moment. It's like between the field museum. In Chicago, which had rights to the specimen, and Disney, which had rights to the specimen, and there you've got McDonald's Corporation that is sponsoring the possibility of the purchase through the auction of Sue uh, through Sotheby's. This this tension and dynamic of yeah. the corporate world with with the the museological world. You have to ask yourself which one is more committed to the public, to the the knowing of those children and so forth, and which one is more committed to a bottom line. Mm-hmm. So this tension, right, that's the specimen spectacle tension, and it continues, and it, it began way back in 1854 with uh, Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins and Richard Owen and um, you know Queen Victoria and Prince Albert back uh, when the Crystal Palace Park was being developed in the south of London.
0: Is there anything you would recommend that people do to improve the scientific accuracy of dinosaurs in museums? Or is it something that's so interconnected with pop culture that we're just kind of stuck with what we have?
3: I think it goes back to your your question earlier that I think it really is important to slow down and engage the public in what you know the actual scientific work to be. I think when you have that dialogue with the public, people are very smart. Five-year-olds are very smart, mm-hmm. right? They get this stuff, and if you you convey this to them, they'll understand it. They will engage with it. The Meiser Project, when it came to the actual visitors, as you might recall from reading the book, there were folks that came and they would they would come back to the exhibit week after week after week. Where they would, if they were there in the museum for six or eight hours, they would come back to the display every hour and see what was going on in the laboratory as they were preparing the specimen. There was a scope there for them to look into. There was a, a video hooked up to the scope so they could see the preparation work going on in real time. I think we have to give credit to visitors that they're deeply engaged. And there is this really important thing that goes on is that we're so inundated with all sorts of fast representations, representations that are coming at us, bombarding us all the time about dinosaurs in video games and so forth, that when you slow down and you involve yourself in this this very slow, palpable work, you realize that there is a a way to be connected. I don't think it's a concern for accuracy. I think it's a concern for slow engagement so that you can participate in the knowledge and participate in the emergence of knowledge that we're all doing all the time and that that scientists do in a very particular way Mm. that is proper to their practice and getting to know that is uh is is really vital so
0: it's really more like completeness than accuracy i guess
3: i think so you know the word i would use is robustness what are the steps? What, what makes it robust so that we come to a moment of knowledge, and we understand how that moment of knowledge emerges out of its situation and all the multiple connections around it that are allowing it to happen? I, I hope that doesn't sound too esoteric, but <laughs> but if for folks that read the read the book, one of the things that I'm after is is a very it's a long book, it's a very slow building up, and that's actually what research is all about. Is it takes. Many of the paleontologists that I know uh, have committed to, to studying dinosaurs when they were very young, and they're still at it today, whether they're in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, their 60s, their 80s, and they get it. They understand the slowness and, and commitment and the power of taking care to really understand these specimens well, even in the, in the flux of all the action, the politics, and economics, and pressures that are around them.
0: Great yeah I really enjoyed your book. I liked looking at it from an anthropologist's perspective because I've read so much from an archaeologist's perspective and even you know some pop culture sides of things. but looking at the anthropology side of it and how we kind of arrived at all of these results more than a hundred years after the first public displays of dinosaurs was really interesting and if any of the listeners want to get a copy of Articulating Dinosaurs, where should they go?
3: Well, it's available on uh, Amazon. You should be able to look it up there. Um, you'll note that there are there's a hardcover and a softcover edition. Make sure that you click on the softcover because it's a lot cheaper <laughs> unless you want to have a durable hardcover edition. And it's also available through the website of uh, the University of Toronto Press, who are the publishers for this book. And uh, I just want to put in a plug for University of Toronto Press and also for the Social Science Humanities Research Council, the Winter Grand Foundation, the Killam Foundation, all of whom have supported the research for this. And, um, you know, I'm just very grateful that that those organizations exist and that they're able to uh, allow our research to go forward. There are similar organizations that support the work of paleontologists and we really need them. So I wanted to acknowledge them at the same time.
2: Great.
0: Good. Well, thanks very much for coming on and letting me interview you, (laughs) because I really enjoyed the book. And it was, it was a fascinating, a little bit outside of my normal scope, but I learned so much. And I learned a lot even about people like Osborne, who have such a, you know, spotty past, (laughs) but were, you know, still incredibly important to the dinosaur research and our current view of them. So it's cool to see all those
3: details. Well, good to hear it. Thanks very much, Garrett.
1: And thanks again to Brian for talking with us and going into depth about your book. Really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating book. And it's one of the reasons we're talking about a fictional dinosaur of the day today rather than a real dinosaur like we often do.
1: And now on our dinosaur of the day, Vastatosaurus rex, which was a request from Damien via Facebook. So thanks, Damien. Vastatosaurus rex is not a real dinosaur, but instead a fictionalized version of T-Rex, had T-Rex continued to evolve and live after the Cretaceous. And as Garrett mentioned earlier, it is seen in the King Kong movie, but only in the 2005 version, not in the original 1933 version.
0: Yeah, it's weird because the name Vastatosaurus rex was only ascribed to the 2005 version, but I think it's really because they were trying to sort of simulate what the T-Rex in the 1933 original version was like, which was made by Willis O'Brien. And at that time, a lot of paleontologists thought that T-Rex had three fingers, including the film's consultant So, in the original King Kong, the T Rex has three fingers. And then I think since everybody now knows that T Rex has two fingers, they came up with this whole Vastatosaurus mythology to go behind it for why T Rex had three fingers. And then they threw in a whole bunch of other stuff. And it's also way bigger than a T Rex would be in real life, which it was in the original, also. And it's a very similar creature, but. It's only known as Vastatosaurus Rex in the 2005 version, if you're being completely precise. (laughs) Yes.
1: So again, as Garrett mentioned, it was originally made by Willis O'Brien for actually a different movie called Creation. But then that movie was canceled because it would have cost the studio a million dollars during the Great Depression. And there's no way they could recoup that cost. A
0: million dollars? Wow. Mm -hmm.
1: So they ended up reusing it for King Kong.
0: Yeah, and all of the dinosaurs in the original King Kong were from this creation movie, in case you're wondering.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So King Kong, the original 1930s version, was done in stop motion, or at least a lot of the special effects. It was pretty groundbreaking, the types of visual effects that they did. And even doing just a couple seconds of animation a day for this stop motion meant that it would take weeks to to make in real life. So it took them seven weeks to animate the two minute battle between King Kong and Vastatosaurus Rex or T-Rex.
0: Yeah, it's crazy, but they use some really cool technology to make it all work. And it stands up pretty well, actually. We just rewatched it and it looks pretty neat. It's definitely worth watching. It's not just like a cheesy garbage movie. It's still significant and enjoyable.
1: Yeah, the 1930s version. We haven't rewatched the 2005 version completely yet, though.
0: Yeah, we saw the part with Vastatosaurus, though.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and it was interesting comparing the fight scenes from the 2005 version versus the 1933 version, and you could see a lot of similarities. Like, it, there were some obvious differences. Like, in the 2005 version, there are two Vastatosaurus Rexes fighting King Kong, whereas in the 30s version, there's only one. Were
0: there only two? It seemed like there were a ton, but maybe I just got lost in the blur of all of them.
1: From what I could tell, it was only two. Though, reading different sites, there's a whole pack of them that live on the island. Okay. I'd have to rewatch the whole movie to know for sure.
0: Yeah, and the new one, it's animated in that crazy almost like fight scene but in kung fu or something where it's like fists and arms and stuff and you can hardly tell what's going on.
1: Yeah, it took us the full six minutes and having to pause to know like, oh, are there actually three fingers? <laughs>
0: yeah, because we had read there were, but you couldn't really tell. But in the original with the stop motion effect, you could really see the details of it a little bit better because it was basically in frame the whole time. There wasn't any crazy camera work going on it was a stationary camera effectively
1: true though they had moments where the Vastatosaurus or t-rex was in the air yeah which is difficult with stop motion yeah
0: they were wrestling and like boxing and stuff it was pretty pretty active
1: the one move that was the same was how the fight ended where Mm -hmm. kong just rips open the dinosaur's jaws
0: yeah it's a little a little graphic
1: pretty yeah I had a strong reaction.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but it was kind of cool that they almost copied exactly the end of the fight sequence. It was obviously an homage to the original there.
1: Yeah. So Vastatosaurus rex is a predator that lives on Skull Island, and it's more than 20 feet or 6 meters tall and 50 feet or 15 meters long. It weighs more than T-Rex, but it's pretty fast. It can run up to 25 miles per hour at short distances. The story goes that it probably grew bigger than T-Rex because of its large prey in its environment.
0: Yeah, what do they call that? Island gigantism or something like that?
1: I remember island dwarfism. I don't know about gigantism.
0: They both exist. It's really strange.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) And the other reason is that it didn't have much competition from other predators. It had a thick, large head and a leather-like hide that protected it from injury and it had a large mouth and large peg-like teeth that were constantly replaced. It used its head to fight, and many Vastatosaurus rexes had scars and abnormal bone growths, and they were somewhat smart. But they were very strong and durable, with a lot of stamina, and very well matched against King Kong, which we noticed in the fight scene with him.
0: That's how it draws out for six minutes. Yeah. Otherwise, it'd be a pretty boring fight sequence if it was much weaker or stronger.
1: That's true. <laughs> So even though they were heavy, they were agile and could leap onto their prey or enemies. So I read somewhere that bullets don't seem to affect it, like Indominus Rex, <laughs> but I would have to rewatch the whole 2005 version to know for sure, because the fight scene with Kong does not involve bullets.
0: Yeah. I'm sure bullets wouldn't have affected it, considering they barely affected the other dinosaurs.
1: Yeah. So Vastatosaurus had shorter teeth than T-Rex, but apparently a bite force stronger than T-Rex that could shatter bones, which... T-Rex could already shatter bones, so having a bite force stronger, definitely do damage. They had sharp claws and a good grip, and short arms, of course, which is not great against King Kong's long arms. They didn't have as good a sense of a smell or vision as T-Rex, and they have narrow, short rib cages and a big gap in between the ribs and hips, which give them a lot of flexibility. As Garrett mentioned, and and we looked for specifically in the fight scene, they have three fingers instead of two. T-Rex has two. And they use this third finger, kind of like a thumb. And actually the frame where we paused, it looked a little bit shorter and thumb-like-ish to me, at least.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: And they have big feet. Sometimes they work together and hunted together, which in the fight scene, obviously it's two against one. Two Rexes versus one Kong.
0: Only in the 2005, though, in the original, it was just one-on-one.
1: Yeah, and it was just the one fight scene and that was the only time you saw it. They're very territorial though, so they don't often hunt together. And they mark their territory with urine and protect it by roaring. <laughs> and apparently, Vastosaurus rex hunts prey by ambushing them, and they usually go for smaller animals because it's less risky. Anyway, an adult Vastosaurus have black scales. Also interesting.
0: Yeah, because I think in the film they looked, or were they kind of speckled with? They like were white speckled. Black.
1: There, there was some black. No feathers.
0: Oh, that's for sure.
1: Just scales. <laughs> I did notice they were very agile, but the way they moved and the way they were constructed is pretty similar to the T-Rex in Jurassic Park. Hmm. I thought, yeah. anyway, the way it was animated.
0: Yeah, it definitely was. Yeah, the T-Rex in Jurassic Park had a huge impact on how everybody sees dinosaurs, so shouldn't be too surprising, like we talked about with Brian Noble. And part of the reason we wanted to highlight this was there's all this mythology behind Vastatosaurus, but... When you start to think about it like a real animal, you realize the only things anybody's ever defined about it is how it fights. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing about, like, parental care. There's nothing about, you know, young or anything. It's just about, like, this is how big an adult got. There's kind of an assumed masculinity to it and everything.
1: You could say the same thing about Kong, right?
0: Yeah, Just this definitely.
1: giant gorilla and he boxes as a way to fight.
0: I'm sure there's a similar colonizing vibe to both of them where they are these big monsters that have to be conquered they don't really serve any other purpose in the world because they don't serve any other purpose to big game hunters basically (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's interesting definitely recommend watching the 1933 king kong and some of willis o'brien's other animation work because he was really talented and did some really cool dinosaur stuff and our fun fact of the day is also about Willis O'Brien.
1: So, Bet you didn't see that coming.
0: <laughs> yeah. He created the stop motion dinosaurs for King Kong and King Kong as well, like we said. But O'Brien was making dinosaur films long before King Kong and before even that creation movie was supposed to come out. He made a film called The Dinosaur and the Missing Link in 1915, which was 18 years before King Kong. And it featured a sauropod killing the titular missing link. And the stop motion animation is pretty good. It was one year after Gertie, the first keyframe drawn animation that you've probably seen. It's a big lumbering sauropod. Very
1: happy looking one.
0: Yeah, although it kind of fights with a woolly mammoth at one point. Mm. I just rewatched that whole video. That was really fun to watch, too. They used clay instead of the more complex rubber over a skeleton.
1: In The Dinosaur and the Missing Link.
0: Exactly. But that one's also definitely worth watching. It's on Wikipedia and YouTube. I think it's so old that nobody's enforcing copyrights anymore.
1: Well, it's in public domain, probably.
0: Yeah, I don't know. They can go up to 120 years, so it's hard to say. And The Dinosaur and the Missing Link is a pretty funny little film, actually. It's sort of a group of cave people and they're all trying to impress this woman and then they're getting into like weird slapstick comedy and then eventually this missing link character shows up that's very much like king kong actually and the sauropod attacks the missing link and ends up killing it and then one of the cavemen pretends like he killed it and then of course he wins the favor of the woman or the uh cave woman in the story so it's pretty funny and as far as claymation goes, it's a lot of fun to watch. No sound, though, because it's from 1915.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so we'll be posting those links on our blog as well, so you can check them out for yourself. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Until next time.